Okay, friends, in contracts today we have finally moved on from talking about I made a promise, can I have this promise met? Anyways, and we're talking about the statute of frauds, and the statute of frauds is actually something that's very interesting. There's a lot to cover here, um, but I'm going to try and keep this as brief, short, simple as possible. I mean, I know I say that a lot, and I end up talking about it more than I say that. Anyways, statute of frauds, we're going to be going over some general principles of the statute of frauds. What it is, uh, originally started in, I think, like 1677 in England, and the purpose of the statute of frauds was to remove fraud. It, It was meant to keep people honest and What it was is that you would write down certain things, certain contracts required you to have it written down so that people couldn't lie about the contract. That's one of the things. It was first to prevent fraud, second to have people think about their contracts more, and there was one other reason, but I can't remember that off the top of my head. But when we're talking about the scope and application of the statute of frauds, there's three questions that we want to ask. The first question is, is this contract a type of contract that needs to be followed under the statute of frauds? Meaning, does is this contract need to be written down? And to determine that, we need to say, okay, is this going to apply underneath the restatement or is this going to apply underneath the UCC? Because both those governing, governing documents, well, I guess the restatement is secondary, but the UCC is primary. Anyways, if it goes underneath the UCC, meaning if it's a good that's more than $500, then it's going to need to meet the statute of frauds, meaning it needs to be written down. If it's less than $500, well, then there's certain requirements underneath the restatements that need to be met in order for it to meet the statute of frauds. So, let's just say, yes, it it needs to follow the statute of frauds. This type of contract needs to be written down. If that is the case, well, then we need to ask the second question. Is the statute of fraud satisfied? Meaning, was it actually written down? Is there sufficient writing? And the UCC and the restatements have a couple of different requirements for what is considered sufficient writing. But ultimately, If it's not written down, well, then we need to determine the third question is, is there an exception to the statute of frauds? And typically those exceptions are going to be performance or things like that. So let's just list a couple of the statutes that are involved with the statute of frauds, and we're going to be focusing on the restatement. I'm just going to list these off one by one. There's a lot, so bear with me. The restatement, section 110, really introduces it. And there are five things underneath the restatement, section 110, that five different types of contracts that need to be written down. Uh, First, it's if you have a duty to take care of the obligations of a decedent. Second, when a person agrees to cover the debts of another person. Third, marriage contracts. Fourth, the sale of land 
and fifth, where the performance is to occur after a year has passed. And that's what the restatement section 10 says. Restatement section 129 uh, means specific performance can only be used if there was a reasonable reliance and if there was performance and full performance. And those things are necessary to provide for a specific performance, which is just saying the court is going to mandate that you do this thing, meaning you need to sell the land to this person. Section 130 says that full performance by one party means that the contract cannot be enforced regardless of the agreement being written down. Sorry, can be enforced. So what that is just saying, if one party has already fully performed, then it doesn't matter whether or not it's written down. The other party is bound to uphold that agreement. Section 131 is that the statute of frauds is satisfied if there is any writing signed by the defendant and if it identifies the subject matter. Section 132 says that those writings can include several writings as long as one of those is signed and the circumstances indicate that they are all related. Uh, section 133, except for marriage, uh, there, the writing does not need to say contract on the top of it, meaning it, it can just be, I will pay you this much. It does not need to be, have written contract, I will pay you this much. Uh, section 134, so the signature uh, that is required. It can be made not only by a signature, but also any symbol, so like an X or check mark or initials, as long as it's intended to communicate that the person wants to be bound by the contract. And finally, the last section that we covered is section 139, and it's just saying the statute of frauds cannot be used to derail otherwise, an otherwise good contract. So you can't use it to say... This contract can apply because it doesn't meet the statute of frauds. We have two cases, two very interesting cases. At least I thought they were interesting. We have Crabtree versus Elizabeth Arden Sales Corp. And what happened here is that the plaintiff was looking for a job. I believe this was late 1940s, 1947. Uh, so... He wanted a salary for 20000 well, for 30000 And Elizabeth Arden uh, came back with a counteroffer saying, I will give you a salary of 20000 for the first six months, 25000 for the next six months, and then thirty for the last, for every year after that. And this is going to be good for two years. That paper was not signed, but he agreed to it. And then afterwards, and there was a second writing, that said, I will, uh, it, that just listed the raises uh, from 20 to 25 to 30. Well, he got his first raise from 20 to 25, but at the end of a year, he did not get a second raise to 30. And so he sued, saying, 
I needed this raise. And the defendant in this case says, no, there was no contract, first of all. Um, But even if there was, this wouldn't apply because of the statute of frauds. And so we need to ask the questions that I listed at the very beginning of this episode is, first, is this a contract that falls within the statute of frauds? And this was because it was a two-year contract. And then the second question is, is the statute of frauds satisfied? And the court here says, yes, it is satisfied. Meaning we won't need to look at an exception, but we need to say, why is this satisfied? Well, there is a sufficient writing. It was written down. And the inner office memo that was listing the wages was signed. The question is whether or not the original paper that listed the term was also going to be good to be part of this contract that had the actual signature. And the courts here said any signature on any of the related transactions is going to be good to fall within the same contract. So the big takeaway from this case uh, is two things. First, this applied because uh, the statute of frauds needed to be met because it was a contract that would last beyond a year and could not be performed within a year. That's very important. And then second is that any communication that is related to the transaction, as long as there is one communication that is signed in writing, that communication can be found to meet the statute of frauds. The second case that we have is Beefer versus Brumlow. This is a very intriguing case, and it's one of those where you sit there and you're reading it and you're like, people really did this? Why did they do this? What happened here is that Brumlow worked for Beaver. Beaver had purchased a large parcel of land and was making payments on it. And Brumlow says, can I purchase four acres of your land to build a home on? And Beaver says, sure, you you, you can purchase some land, but we'll work out the details later. And so Brumlow goes ahead and he purchases a double uh, double trailer home and moves it onto the property, sets the foundation, uh, adds skirting around it, uh, adds an aseptic tank, and is working on landscaping. And Beaver, throughout this whole time, is looking at it and is like, that's, that's cool. Look at all that development. Beaver is also at this time talking to his lawyer. He doesn't actually want to sell this land just yet because there's a clause in his mortgage saying the mortgage needs to be paid on full when the land is sold. Well, if he sells this small parcel of land, then the full price of the land is going to come due. And he probably doesn't have that money and doesn't want to sell it. So he's trying to think of a way probably where he doesn't have to sell this land, but he doesn't want to kick the people off. And really, he's in a lose-lose situation. And the Brumlows are in a lose-lose situation because they're asking for a written formal document, and Beaver is not providing it. So this is an all-around very poor situation because the Brumlows, by this point, have put in $85,000 
into the double trailer home, into the renovating of the land, cleaning it all up. They had pulled out from their 401k and suffered penalties from um, pulling out of that. So it's a very poor situation. And ultimately, my biggest takeaway is that they should have gone to the lawyers earlier to work it all out. Uh, Beaver shouldn't have agreed to let them move stuff onto the property without fully intending to send it originally, sell it originally. And Brumlow shouldn't have moved onto the property without already having an agreement. Anyways, what happened here, Brumlow ended up changing companies. And he was starting to work for a competitor of Beaver, and Beaver got really upset. And he tried to develop an agreement, calling it a lease agreement, and using it to saying, you're not following the lease, I'm going to evict you. And so Brumlow counters with that, saying, we did have an agreement, you were going to sell this property to me. And the court goes through the whole process, and let's just walk through the steps again. The first step is, is this a type of contract that meets within the statute of frauds? This is going to be underneath the restatement, not the UCC, because at this point, it's not a movable object. It's, it's a home on a property. The land is something that is going to go underneath the restatement. This is the sell and interest of land underneath restatement one, I believe, four. Uh, sorry, 110, uh, paragraph 4. And so the statute of frauds is going to apply here. So the second question is, is the statute of frauds satisfied? Meaning, was there a written document? And the answer here is no. There was not a written document. So the statute of frauds is not satisfied, which means that we move on to the third question, and that is, is there an exception that applies to this contract that can allow it to be enforceable. And the court here says, yes, there is an exception to this contract. And that exception is that the party had performed in part. Both parties had performed in part. Beaver had started talking to an attorney, and he had given permission for the parties to begin working on that property. The Bermlows? Bermlows. Brumlows, excuse me, had purchased the double trailer, moved it onto the property, and conducted several renovations to the land. The only thing that they hadn't done was paid for the land because there was not an agreed price term. So there was part performance here sufficient to say if we don't enforce this, then there would be an injustice upon the suing party and we want to avoid that injustice and so the exception to the statute of frauds applies here and does not bar it from being enforceable ultimately what this means is that the statute of frauds does not mean guarantee that if somebody is going to win a case it just means that they have the opportunity to try their case before a court and that is an overview of the statute of frauds, we'll get more into it in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing 
is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.